There exists a limit to the editing even the most powerful may apply without destroying their episodes. Judging this limit is the true artistry of podcasting. Misuse of editing is the fatal sin. The DAW cannot be a tool of vengeance, never a hostage, nor a fortification against the wave files it has created. You cannot threaten any individual and escape the consequences. Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. Here we are, Leo. Ah! <laughs> At last, the yeah. final Dune Messiah book club episode. Good lord. What a good book. <laughs> What a damn good book. Yeah. Uh, what a journey it's been. It's been so much fun diving into the pages of this book, 50 pages at a time across these last eight episodes. And today, of course, we will be wrapping it up. Indeed. Today's episode, like the bonus episode from the Dune book club, that first one we did, is going to be in two parts. And this first part is going to be completely spoiler free. Mm-hmm. And then we are taking our gloves off. <laughs> yeah. We're hitting with some like book six stuff. So we will give ample warning. We'll make it very, very clear when you should stop listening if you're worried about spoilers. The other option, of course, is this episode will be here. Get through the other six books. You can always come back. Right. Now, before we dive in, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. Leo, you already covered the spoiler warning for today. But as always... We must thank our patrons. Yes. This show is made possible by the incredible support of our patrons. So if you're a fan of what we do here, consider joining to get benefits like ad-free episodes and an invitation to our exclusive Discord server. Indeed. And with that in mind, we also have to, of course, thank our incredibly generous Quisets Haderach level patrons, Kaysaken, Nate Hyde. Y'all are champions. Good Lord. Absolute champions. I feel like... If you were babies in a creche, I would trust you to show me around the room. I'd look through your eyes, Case and Nate. <laughs> yeah, true. Help me throw <laughs> this knife. I'm trying to hit this guy in the face. All right. <laughs> Another great way to support the show and look good on your first date since the start of the pandemic. Hey. Is to check out our amazing merch on gomjabarshop.com. Yes. We got t-shirts. We got tank tops. We got this amazing enamel pin that Leo designed. Check all of that out at gomjabarshop.com. Indeed. And if there's something missing from that site, or you just want to say hi, or you got questions, or you have episode ideas, if you want to reach us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. That's an email address. You can email, and we will get it, and maybe respond with three sentences or six pages. There is no in-between. <laughs> it's one or the other. That's how it works. So that's housekeeping out of the way. Let's quickly again go over what today's episode will be we'll be splitting today's episode in two the first half the completely spoiler free half will be an extended mailbag section 
We're going to be sharing questions and thoughts that our listeners have sent us either to that email address, gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com, or that our patrons have messaged in the Discord. Right. And again, that first half of today's episode will be spoiler-free. We'll not discuss anything beyond Dune and Dune Messiah, the two books we've covered thus far. Now, that whole time, our gloves are going to be fully on. That's right. Then we take them off. Second half of the episode, those gloves, <laughs> you wrote shackles in the script. <laughs> we'll be taking off our gloves. Do you not feel trapped a little bit? And shackles, both. <laughs> we have been gloved and shackled this whole time. Eight episodes. Right. Shackles. We record these from prison, <laughs> lest you forget. Again, to establish some meta lore. That's true. <laughs> We'll be discussing our kind of favorite themes and ideas from Dune Messiah in the context of all six of Frank's books with, you know, bits and pieces from the Dune Encyclopedia. As always, we will give ample warning, I promise. But again, if you're like listening to us as you drive or cook or whatever you do, just be ready to stop the episode if you're worried about spoilers, because that is going to happen. No shackles, no gloves. <laughs> no clothes no clothes <laughs> all right give me a second Let's get back. <laughs> well while leo takes his clothes off let's take a quick break but don't go anywhere folks because when we come back we're jumping into that mailbag and answering some really great questions from listeners so stick around another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app find a location near you at bank of talk to us what would you like the power to do Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Okay, welcome back, everybody. Man, it's suddenly breezier here in the booth. That's pretty nice. <laughs> First up, we got a Discord message from Tessa. Tessa wrote, quote, I finished the book earlier this week and just finished the episode. It was, wow, tragic. Lots of stuff packed into two chapters. I have to say, as a woman who has a baby, I was kind of mad at Paul for not being there with Johnny while she was giving birth, but I guess he was just doing what he had to do. It sounds like a pretty easy excuse to get out of anything. <laughs> Sorry, I can't be there for the hardest thing you'll ever go through, Johnny. Gotta follow the vision. <laughs> being married to Paul has gotta be tough. But it would be nice in some ways. You never get in, I don't know answer to what should i make for dinner <laughs> you make spice noodles again haha -ha. <laughs> thanks for the book club i loved it it really added so much to the experience it's especially good for us newbies who can't google anything the internet is full of spoilers ain't that the truth i know there will be a break but i'm on board for children of dune what a great message tessa thank you so much i do love that idea of Honey, what should we have for dinner? You, I already know what you're going to make, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so exhausting. Yeah. I mean, look, relationships are work, right? Relationships are hard for anyone and everyone. But being in love with Paul has got to be particularly exhausting. Oh, true. Tessa makes an excellent point here. I, for one, 
I'm definitely with my future wife going to try something along the lines of, sorry, honey, my visions today didn't show me taking out the trash. So, and we'll see how that goes, you know? On our uh, 450th episode of Gam Jabbar, you'll have to report back on how that's going. <laughs> yeah, to your point, Tessa, it is a moment that feels bad because we love, as readers of Dune, we love Chani and we love Paul and we want them to be happy together. After all, what's the point of all of Paul's choices if he's miserable? And ultimately, it's just got to be so difficult for both of them. You imagine Chani going through the most difficult thing in her life with all of the fear and all the uncertainty, and Paul isn't there. But also for Paul, in that scene where he's out at the desert and not by her side, we know the last thing in the world he's trying to think about is Chani because it's just got to be torture. Yeah. And we, of course, get Paul's perspective in all of this. I kept thinking about what all of this must be like from Chani's perspective. Yeah. Being left completely in the dark. She keeps asking Paul, have you seen it? But have you seen it? And Paul refuses to tell her. Right. And we can assume that him telling her would also change the future. That's another ripple effect, another butterfly effect that would change the future and possibly create an outcome that he doesn't want so he keeps her in the dark intentionally yeah so tessa brings up an excellent point here and i think it's really important for us to remember that we only get paul's perspective on it as difficult as it was for paul to go stand on that outcropping and talk to duncan idaho and not be there with the love of his life and his newborns it was probably 10 times harder for chani in there who was quite literally giving birth to two human beings, but <laughs> also did not have her lover there in the room with her. And also these were the last moments of her life. That's tragic to think about. Yeah. With Villeneuve's adaptation, focusing a little bit more on Chani and giving her the spotlight. I hope that we do get more of Chani's side of things through. I mean, again, the first movie started with Chani. Like she's barely in the first part of the book. So anyway, all of that to say, I think you're not alone in that, Tessa. I think a lot of people, even the ones in charge of making the movie, are maybe wondering about Chani's side of things. For sure. For sure. And I think one of the criticisms that's often said about Messiah is how diminished Chani's role is all throughout. Right. Yeah. She's really only there as this plot device for Paul and his motivations and his prescience. And she's not really doing much except supporting Paul and in these occasional scenes with Paul. <laughs> kind of being talked out of doing things. <laughs> exactly. She's like, I exactly. want to kill Irulan. He's like, no, 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 you don't. You don't You do not do that. She's like, fuck. Right, right. And I think that's a valid criticism as well. Totally, yeah. Is we only ever see Chani in relation to Paul, right? She is almost this accessory in Messiah, which of course we know she isn't. Right, right. But we don't get sequences with her entirely independent of Paul. We know she's doing things in the background. There's that one chapter where Paul is talking to Korba and Hate, and he says, oh, Chani and Alia are holding that dinner party out in the courtyard. So she's out here like running the empire and doing shit, but we just don't see it on the pages of Dune Messiah. So I think it's a valid criticism and one that I hope the movie addresses. I think you're spot on, Leo, that with Zendaya in that role, you do not waste such a talented yeah. and electric actor like her. Right. 
All right. One last thing I wanted to say about Tessa's message before we move on. She mentions Children of Dune there at the end. And that's a great reminder to all of our listeners that this is not where the book club series will stop. We have committed to going through all six of Frank Herbert's books, and we will be jumping into Children of Dune at some point in the future. We haven't locked down that schedule yet, so stay tuned for more details on that soon. Indeed. All right. Next up, we have an email from Lindsay Riera. This is what she wrote. Quote, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Sci-Fi Network's miniseries adaptation of Dune and Children of Dune. What parts of the series did you both love and what parts do you think could be done better in the new film adaptations? Personally, I love the miniseries for what it is, but I obviously can't wait for Dune Messiah and Children of Dune to be adapted for the big screen. End quote. Woo, Lindsay! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I want to talk about it so bad. Uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Get in line. (laughs) Get it. Lindsay. At at this point, the number of listeners who want us to talk about the sci-fi miniseries should just form a club (laughs) and perhaps raise hell in a local pizza hut or something, you know, like some sort of protest. I don't know what gom jabber is, but they they are awfully worked up about it. No, Lindsay. The sci-fi series is so high on our list. Honestly, if it wasn't for a weekly episode schedule that we've been maintaining, I think we probably would have done it already. But now that we're going to be into a month or two between this book club and the next book club, we will 100% be doing an episode about the sci-fi series. I will say very quickly, I fucking love it. I think it's so good. Yeah? It's so chunky and weird at times but it's just made with so much heart and it's so faithful to the books it's incredible there are some changes of course as always but oftentimes it was like word for word often to the disadvantage of the viewing experience (laughs) i'm like amazing "Ah, you could have changed that a little bit no (laughs) so good (laughs) i love it i'm a huge fan i can't wait to talk about it that's amazing i haven't watched it myself yet so it's really exciting to hear you leo gush about it i'm excited to dive into it once we have some time now that this book club is wrapped up i'll also say i love Lindsay's idea about talking about what we like about the miniseries but also then speculating about what denny might do in his adaptation and how he might improve it's a good point sounds like a good part one part two of an episode <laughs> hey <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. Lindsay, you are you a podcast producer? Yeah, <laughs> damn. Say. You want a job? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there maybe there's a line for that. So, you know, get in line, <laughs> as we said. <laughs> at the Pizza Hut. The line's at, at the local the pi- Pizza yeah. Hut. Go to your local Pizza Hut. Demand a job at Gamja Bar. <laughs> <laughs> They'll have applications, we promise. We shipped applications to every Pizza Hut we could find. But we told them to be very coy about it. So if they say they don't know what they're talking about, they're lying and you should press harder. You must insist. (laughs) There goes our chances of being sponsored by Pizza Hut. (laughs) Yeah. Damn, screwed the pooch on free pizza. Damn it. (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next message. Indeed. Some of you might remember Evan James from early on in this book club, I believe episode one or even two, we answered some excellent questions from Evans and he's back, folks. He's back with a vengeance. Nice. With another great question. This is what he wrote to us. Quote, 
What exactly was the Tleilaxu plan with blowing up the bomb that blinded Paul? If they had just set off the bomb a little earlier, they could have killed him and gotten rid of him once and for all. Was it a mistake that the bomb went off when it did? Or was that their plan to blind Paul? Why? It seems excessive using the equivalent of a nuclear bomb that has the possibility of destroying the entire planet and the source of spice just to blind him. Did they think that by blinding him, Paul would be weaker and the Fremen would not want to follow him? End quote. A lot to address there in that email. No kidding. Now, there are some wires crossed here, as sometimes happens with nuclear bombs, but especially in this case, <laughs> which is totally fair. This is super confusing on a first read. Let's break it down. The early chapter of the conspirators meeting on Wallach 9 and Saitail's involvement in that meeting can very easily mislead you into thinking that there is just one conspirator group working against Paul. But to be very clear, there are so many different parties that are independently trying to levy some change and to affect some change in Paul's government. Ultimately, the group that secured the nuclear material was actually the Kizarate. Now, the Tleilaxu know about everything. They've kind of got their fingers in every pie, and that's their brilliance. But that was a different group's plan, basically. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, Leo, there are a number of different plots and maybe it would be helpful if we kind of broke down what some of the major plots are in this book and who's behind them. Because I think that then paints this picture of how the Tleilaxu have their hands in all these pies. Right. So let's break down each plot. Like you said, the stone burner attack on Paul was primarily a plot by the Fremen and the Kizarate traders. This was their attempt at outright killing Paul. Right. There's also a plot to steal a worm off of Arrakis. And the folks behind this are the guild. They want their own source of spice. They don't want to be locked into this monopoly of Arrakis. And so they attempt to steal a worm and start the spice cycle on a different planet. Plot number three is the poisoning of Chani, that birth control poison that Irulan is giving her. And this, of course, is the Bene Gesserit plot to gain control of the Kwisatz Haderach genes and to prevent Chani's wild Fremen genes getting mixed up in Paul's Kwisatz Haderach genes in some future child. Yeah. I mean, again, Irulan administering the contraceptive and then separately being like, Paul, don't you want kids? Huh? Yeah. Right here? Huh? huh? <laughs> <laughs> Paul's like, God, I will garret the shit out of you, Irulan. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And plot number four is, of course, the Tleilaxu's own plot, the Gola hate, how he will psychologically twist Paul, and then ultimately they will offer Paul this bargain to bring Chani back in the form of a Gola with her own memories intact. Or as we know, when B-Jazz explains this plot to hate, the plan B is for hate to just actually kill Paul in that moment when he hears the trigger words. Thus, giving the Tleilaxu Paul's body so they can create a puppet Gola. Either way, win-win for them. Right. Well, and actually, let's break down all of the plans going through those, right? How do the Tleilaxu use each one, those crafty, clever bastards? 
Well, starting with the stone burner, remember the stone burner attack is preceded by Bijaz, the dwarf, the Tleilaxu Gola dwarf, being put in position where he now has access to a one-on-one conversation with Hate, which sets up the kind of cocked gun that is Hate. Right. They basically agree to the stolen worm plan to gain the guild's allegiance and continue through Edric and through their connections with the guild, ensuring they're protected from Paul's prescience, which is not a small thing. The uh, Benny Desert poisoning plot, of course, is a backup plan to ensure Chani's death. Right. And then, of course, finally, as we discussed in our last episode, they have their kind of creme de la creme, the Gola plan, which will either result in Paul's exile or the, as you said, Abu, Gola puppet, <laughs> the Kwisatz Haderach puppet, fully strung up to their gross little Tleilaxu fingers. Right. So that shows us just how deep the Tleilaxu have put their grubby little fingers in everyone else's pies. Ew. <laughs> they they are piggybacking on the Fremen plot, the Bene Gesserit plot, the Guild plot. All of these forces are sort of working together, but also quietly working against each other. I think one other thing to remember is how fluid all of these plots are. Like everyone is just sort of making it up as they go on the fly. There's like a general plan, but people are countering with each other and countering each other's counters and there's plots within plots. Right. So right. as new information comes up and as all of these forces work against each other and with each other, it's a moving chessboard. Nothing is absolutely consistent. But ultimately it's clear that the Tleilaxu are the greatest threat among all of these plots. So listen, if you got your pies out and you see grubby little finger holes in them, just be aware. (laughs) Probably what happened. Next up, we have a question from George. Quote, when do you think Bronzo wrote his book? I am confused. Because in the interrogation shortly before his execution, and so certainly after the book has been written, he asks whether their leader, Mwadib, knows about the activities of his church or not. The excerpt from the book itself in the next chapter tells us, however, that Mwadib already has, quote, fell victim to the intrigues of his enemies, end quote. This sounds to me like Paul was not the leader anymore at the time of the book writing. For me, these two details don't match, end quote. Man, George, you got an eye for detail, friend. That's some attention yeah. to my new shy. <laughs> are you? Are you? Fucking, are, you? are you Benny Jesuit? You're Benny Jesuit? Are you? George? <laughs> George? Explain yourself, Fess up, George. buddy. <laughs> you fucked up, Fess George. Up. <laughs> Moheim's coming for you. No, she can't. <laughs> yeah, this is a great eye for detail. Unfortunately, there's not a super clear canon answer to this puzzle from what I could find in my research. Yeah. So all we can really do is posit some theories that might explain this situation. And what makes it even more confusing, of course, is that Brian Herbert fucks with Bronzo's lore and gives him more background than Frank ever did. Bronzo only ever exists in Frank's work in these two very small chapters in Dune Messiah, and he's never written about again. Brian introduces more backstory for Bronzo, which muddies the water even more. Of course, as we do on this podcast... We won't be taking Brian's lore into account and discussing only what is in the encyclopedia 
and in Frank's own words. Right. Three theories. See how you like these, George. Theory number one. It's possible Bronzo was publishing his ideas in other forms, sending out distrans, tweeting on the toilet, <laughs> publishing newspaper articles and tabloids, you know, People Magazine, new article from Bronzo Evicts. Oh, hell yeah. Pick that up when you're in line to buy your seltzer on your lunch break. Now, it's possible then that his interrogation takes place during Paul's reign while he is talking shit online and via distrans and via smoke signals and all of that. And then his book, The Final Complete Compilation, is actually published posthumously after he's been executed by the Kizarate. Like, that's one theory, right? Yeah. And this is probably my personal headcanon for this, is that he's arrested just for tweeting shit against the emperor and executed, but then somebody collects his writings into a final published works. You know, that happens. It, it does happen where people will have, like, appendices that are letters from the original author that have been attached to relevant writings, right? Uh, so I could see that. I think that's a strong theory, for sure. Yeah. So theory number two is a bit simpler. It could simply be that Bronzo published his analysis of history immediately or very soon after the Stoneburner attack. Right. And then is quickly apprehended and killed by the Quizarati agents before the end of Dune Messiah, before Paul walks out into the desert. That timeline also you could poke some holes in, but that would explain why in the interrogation they talk about his book, they talk about the analysis, but Paul is still alive, and why the book itself perhaps talks about Paul in the past tense, is that if he published it after the Stoneburner attack, he could be assuming that Paul's reign has come to an end, and that this attack is the thing that brings Paul down. Yeah. It's true. Now, the third theory is that, well, this is kind of this is kind of an umbrella theory. Could be a few <laughs> things. Some of these are wild, right? Could be a ghost writer. Bronzo Evix is a collective. Like you know, some people theorize that Shakespeare was multiple people, right? Yep. Or <laughs> Bronzo Gola. Fuck it. Why not? Love it. My was favorite. like, yep. yeah, bring back a Gola <laughs> Bronzo. <laughs> he was great. He was such a. He was funny. Listen to here, you Fremen degenerate. What a <laughs> great guy. Bring him back. Or, hey, maybe Bronzo is one of seven siblings, all named Bronzo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, so many possibilities. I mean, at the end of the day, none of them, even theories one and two, are airtight. I think, as with many things in Dune, there isn't a clear answer. So I'd say find the thing that kind of reverberates best within your soul and uh, stick with that headcanon. I personally, really, now that I've said it out loud, I love the idea of Gola Bronzo. And people are like, really? <laughs> him? And the Tweilaxu are like, listen, he's got a fucking tongue on him. It's great. He's so great. sassy. <laughs> Have you read some of his works? They're great. His satire, political comics, ugh, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> Huge Bronzo fans. Yeah. Tweilaxu, who knew? <laughs> yeah, I personally love that theory, too. I also like the idea of like a Freaky Friday Bronzo twin mix-up situation where the Kizarate caught the wrong brother. <laughs> and it's the sassier brother who's like, what the fuck are you Fremen degenerates doing? 
but he's ride or die for his brother. So he's like, fuck it. Right. Yes. Yes, I am him. Kill oh, me. Of course. <laughs> a very Spartacus situation, you know? I yeah. am Bronzo. I am Bronzo. I would. I, I would totally <laughs> wrote that analysis of history. I, I would. I wrote that histories of that, that guy. They're like, you don't know the name of it? And he's like, yes. No, I'm faking it. <laughs> <laughs> all great theories but yeah ultimately no clear answer like you said leo and yeah. we just have to uh create a little bit of headcanon for ourselves on this one that's true we've done it before and we'll do it again <laughs> all right and that brings us to the end of today's mailbag section so i want to be very clear here we are now going to be talking spoilers spoiler warning but before we jump into the second half of our episode and get into a spoiler-heavy discussion about Dune Messiah, we're going to take one more break. So, for those of you that have read all of his books, don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back. Again, spoiler warning. <laughs> spoiler <laughs> warning. You had the whole ad break. Okay. To start off, I'm going to pass the baton to you, Abu. We both chose two kind of themes to talk about exploring Messiah in this kind of greater context of all six of Frank's books. What is your first pick? Okay, so... My first pick is about the golden path. Nice. This is a central idea, a central theme in the entire Dune saga. And it's here in Dune Messiah that the golden path begins to reveal itself. And it's not actually called the golden path in this book. It doesn't get that official name and branding until Children of Dune, where Leto II, the marketing genius... <laughs> decides I'm going to call this shit the golden path. Yeah. But we start to see glimpses of it through Paul as early as Dune Messiah. So Paul repeatedly mentions throughout Messiah the horrible sacrifices that he must make to ensure the best future outcomes. His visions continue to show him just <laughs> bleaker and bleaker futures. Yeah. And we see how he's constantly backed into a corner, always being forced to choose the lesser of two evils. There's just no way to find a perfect path forward. Here's a quote from the book. He remembered his earliest visions of the jihad to be the terror and revulsion he'd experienced, 
Now, of course, he knew visions of greater terrors. He had lived with the real violence. He had seen his Fremen, charged with mystical strength, sweep all before them in the religious war. The jihad gained a new perspective. It was finite, of course, a brief spasm when measured against eternity. But beyond lay horrors to overshadow anything in the past, end quote. Ugh. And that right there puts it into perspective. We spend all of the first book worried about the jihad because that is what a very young Paul, who is very early in his prescient abilities, sees. Yeah, That's the big looming threat. And then we move to Dune Messiah. We realize, yeah, no, whatever. The jihad's already <laughs> happening. Yeah, That's not the real danger. There are worse things that Paul is now seeing in his future. And not just his future, but humanity's future. He is literally seeing millions of ways humanity could end. The stakes have been raised in this book. Yeah, no kidding. And I love that you brought up the putting it in perspective because measuring it against eternity, right? We get that phrasing a couple of times in Messiah. And it's worth remembering, even though Paul says 61 billion dead, <laughs> hundreds of planets sterilized, you know, religions dissolved. Only 12 years. Only 12 years. Three United States presidential terms. My guy did a lot in a very short period of time, but it is a very short period of time. Compare that for Paul to looking forward and seeing no humanity and looking forward and seeing no humanity forever, period. Yeah. Perspective is huge. And perspective doesn't really exist in that way in the first book. It's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's part of how Dune Messiah really sets the stage for the books to come. Paul even sees this massive galactic empire that his child is destined to rule in his visions. He tells Chani, quote, I promise you a thing, beloved. A child of ours will rule such an empire that mine will fade in comparison. End quote. God, one of my favorite lines on a reread, having read God Emperor of Dune, what a fucking great moment. Exactly. That line does not hit until you reread the book knowing what is to come. And in addition to that quote, we actually get a double whammy because in this same scene, just a few lines later, he touches Chani's baby bump and talks directly to his child. Quote, ah, little ruler of the universe, wait your time. This moment is mine. End quote. Jeez. Sheesh. <laughs> These two quotes in particular take on such weight. Yeah. Once you know what happens in Children of Dune, God Emperor Dune, and beyond. Little ruler of the universe. He will rule an empire that will make mind fade in comparison. Yeah. That is exactly and explicitly what Leto 2 does. On a kind of a meta perspective, it's fun to see Frank have those grander aspirations for the story of Dune this early on. Like, Dune is pretty contained. And of course, Dune Messiah does finish the kind of arc of Paul, which I'll talk about in a bit. But to see him planting these seeds of things that may come is just, it's so delicious. It's my favorite kind of writing. <laughs> it is, yeah. So continuing with this analysis of the Golden Path, by the end of Dune Messiah, we know that one of the sacrifices that Paul has to make is allowing Chani to die. It is, of course, one of the central struggles of this book and one of the central struggles of Paul's own life. 
But all throughout the book, he does hint at other sacrifices that he should make, but is unwilling to. And of course, by the time we get into Children of Dune and then God Emperor of Dune, we know that his son Leto too does take on this terrible burden and makes many of these sacrifices his own father refused to. He, he becomes a godworm. He subjugates <laughs> humanity worm. for 3,500 years. Yeah, He does all of these things that Paul did not want to or could not make himself do. And to be fair to Paul, we've talked about this on the podcast before as well. To be fair, you can't entirely blame him for not wanting to take on that level of responsibility. Yeah. And we actually get Oh, I can't wait to talk about this in the <laughs> Children of Dune book club. This is—I've reread this chapter like seven or eight times. Yeah, and every time I just like like have chills throughout the whole chapter. It's so good. So in the in that iconic chapter, father and son finally confront each other in Children of Dune, and we get this incredible quote. Yeah, and Leo, actually, I think we should act this out. <laughs> sure. Do you yeah. want to be Paul and I'll be Leto? Oh, I would love to. Let me just burn Great. out my eyes quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So here's the passage from Children of Dune. Quote, Thousands of peaceful years. That's what I'll give them. Dormancy. Stagnation. Of course. And those forms of violence which I permit. It'll be a lesson which humankind will never forget. I spit on your lesson. You think I've not seen a thing similar to what you choose? You saw it. And seen Thank you, Leo. Wonderful. <sighs> Again, at this point, we have nine or ten Oscars on their way. <laughs> <laughs> if Timmy's busy, you should audition and uh, be the stand-in for Paul Atreides. No one will notice great. the recast. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing passage. I love that so much. It makes it clear to us that Paul has seen some version of the Golden Path as early as Dune Messiah. And it makes clear that he's disgusted by it. I spit on your lesson. Whereas his son Leto, again, kind of is the hardier person, is like, yeah, no, I have to do this, Dad. I have to teach humankind a lesson they'll never forget and subjugate them. I have to become a worm. <laughs> Dad, you can't stop me. Gotta be a worm. <laughs> it's amazing. And so just to wrap up my point here, in summary, in Dude Messiah... Paul does what he must to ensure the lives of his family and the future of his empire. In Children of Dune and in God Emperor of Dune, his son eventually does the same thing. He makes the sacrifices and the choices that must be made to ensure the future of all of humanity. The scope blows up. And he's no longer just thinking about Atreides. He's no longer just thinking about his family. He's thinking about the trillions of lives in the galaxy. Yeah. And the lesson he must teach humankind. <laughs> and of course, when we do dive into Children of Dune, this is a central idea we will be talking a lot about in those episodes. No kidding. Okay, so moving on from the Golden Path, I'm going to hand it off to you, Leo. What was your first spoiler takeaway from Dune Messiah? So this isn't going to be too far-reaching, but basically, my first takeaway was really just, let's take a moment and appreciate that Messiah delivers Frank's thesis in full and also is basically Dune Part 4. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, once you read Messiah, it is so clear that Dune by Frank Herbert 
is not a complete story. It is, oh, sorry, it is a complete story. It is not the complete story, right? In many ways, the kind of dominoes, the house of cards that is set up in those like 800, 900 pages don't really come down until Messiah. Like there are promises made that aren't delivered upon until Messiah's final pages. And more than that, I'm, I'm kind of looking now at Messiah as the most important of all of the Dune books, right? Like, wow, may, maybe still not my favorite, but very clearly the most impactful of the six books. So to kind of take a step back for a second, and I think we might have all had this experience if you talk to people about Dune in your life. When I try to explain the plot of Dune <laughs> to people, I, I kind of have to split it, right, into like two broad categories. On one hand, Dune very broadly is about House Atreides narrowly escaping the trap set by Houses Harkonnen and Carino, but it's also primarily about religion as a means of control and a warning about messianic and kind of uh, charismatic leaders and figures. And mm-hmm. obviously, like that's Dune 101, <laughs> Intro to Dune, everyone's favorite class in college that wasn't offered. <laughs> and although that's the case, this warning about charismatic leaders, the end of the book, the end of Dune is a fucking blast. <laughs> it's so yeah. much fun, pun intended. It's the toppling of a 10,000-year empire. The bad guys, in kind of heavy quotation marks, lose. The evil Arcanans lose. The shitty Carinos lose. Paul takes his Air Jordans, his uncreased Air Jordans. <laughs> it's a great moment. And Paul is now Neo from The Matrix. It's a dope moment. It's so much fun. So you can't really be blamed for coming away from the end of Dune by Frank Herbert going, well, yeah, Paul's great. What a great guy Paul is. Paul's wonderful. Nevertheless, recall Irulan's foreword to those last pages. Quote, can you say he did this out of a sense of justice? Who's justice then? Remember, we speak now of the Muad'Dib who ordered battle drums made from his enemies' skins. The Muad'Dib who denied the conventions of his ducal past with a wave of the hand, saying merely, I am the Kwisatz Haderach, that is reason enough. Oh my God. First of all, just what a great moment. But that foreshadowing of the jihad to come was a shocking shift in tone. And honestly, I missed it my first read through. And I think a lot of people do. So Dune ends, and I would say... A lot of people go, what a great story about what a wonderful protagonist. Mm-hmm. So I think it's clear to say that Dune is incomplete, an incomplete version of Paul's story. And Messiah finishes that arc, showing us Paul's selfish avoidance of the golden path, clinging to his moments with Chani, but just barely avoiding catastrophe for all of humans, just every single human. Yeah. And Again, it's worth remembering that although, Abu, you and I love Dune Messiah, it is a controversial book. I have heard people say, I hate that book. Oh, it's so why did you have to ruin Paul? Paul was such a good character and now you've ruined him. Right. And I would take issue with people making that claim. Yeah. Paul was always headed down this path and Frank was always going to bring him to where he does in Dune Messiah. Right. Dune at once is kind of ending Paul's story but also beginning the story of his children, all while basically setting the stage for some of the most critical moments in the later books. Right. Now, going further into the books, Paul's experience also sets the stage basically for Odraid, which 
I'll also talk about as my second takeaway. But the 10,000 years of House Carino ruling the entire galaxy unchallenged because of the might of the Sardaukar, well, we see that shift from the brutal might of a single army to something far more intricate and elaborate with the Kwisatz Haderach having this omniscience and this all-seeing power. And now the people who are forced to come center stage are those previously very secretive groups, the Tleilaxu, the Bene Gesserit, and the Guild, are forced to be like, well, we're the new Lance Rat, I guess. <laughs> like, we're the only ones who together could maybe do something? Yeah. I mean, all of that starts in Messiah. It's insane. And really does foreshadow a lot of what we see in Heretics and Chapter House. Just, anyway, just to wrap up my point and to reiterate, Messiah is the book that pivots us away from, as you put it, Abu, a planetary story of House Atreides, the boy Paul Atreides, into the man Paul Atreides, but also a galactic story where we're introduced to the vast possibilities of literally eternity. And with the end of Paul's story, with Dune Messiah, so opens the door to literally everything to come. And it's handled masterfully. It's a great book. <laughs> have we said that yet? It, I, I don't think we have. Did, wait, <laughs> did you all know that we like this book? Right, We're on the record. About it. Yeah, for the record. Please quote us on that. Five out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> it's also, I'll say, the fastest way to tell if someone has only read Dune. <laughs> If you're like, yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Paul's a hero? Sounds like, you don't fuck with Bronzo Mix. Let's compare Bronzo <laughs> tattoos. You don't have one. Oh, embarrassing for you. <laughs> wow. If you don't fuck with Bronzo, we don't fuck with you. Hey, get out. Get out of the line. <laughs> get out of that pizza hut. <laughs> Go home and read the book. <laughs> yeah, the first line of our application is, what's your favorite Bronzo quote? Yeah, to prepare you for your application process at Pizza. <laughs> pizza. Yeah. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. So that's my first takeaway. Back to you, Abu. What is your second takeaway? Okay, so my second takeaway is a little less expansive than the first. I wanted to hone in on golas as a concept. <laughs> Something fucking nuts <laughs> to consider. Just nuts. Because in Messiah, hate is the only Gola we interact with directly. Bejaz is there a little bit. But hate is really our only concept of what a Gola is and what a Gola can do. There is that weird theory that's, that uh, Piter DeVry University is also a Gola. Remember that? <laughs> that's true. I love that theory. It's so weird. I don't, I don't like it, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah. A it's fun kind of thought like, exercise. There's only one Olsen and she just moves back and forth fast enough that she looks like two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. So. Oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that you're a one Olsener. <laughs> I'm a one Olsener, okay? Yeah. We're always at war with those flat earthers for trying to book our fucking conference halls for our meetings. But... God, we also run out of tinfoil. <laughs> it's fashionable and functional. It's great. <laughs> I'm on to you, Olsen. Single. So Golas in this book become such a central factor in this universe, mainly because, in short, they unlock the key to immortality. Oh, only that? <laughs> cool. Just that. Okay. 
I want to reiterate just how universe shattering of a moment it is when hate regains his memories and becomes Duncan Idaho. It is not only shattering for Duncan, for hate, for Paul and the Atreides, but quite literally everyone in this universe, and in particular, the Tleilaxu. Mm. Think of what they've accomplished by the end of Dune Messiah. Someone who has died, they've brought back to life in the form of a Gola. Okay, sure, whatever. That seems like a thing they've been able to do for a while now. Yeah, easy, sure. The impossible thing that happened is that this person got their memories back of the past life and the Tleilaxu who learned how to do that by applying the right type of psychological pressure. In short, they've unlocked immortality. Rinse and repeat. You can now do that with anyone. As long as you understand the right type of pressure to apply to break their psyche and bring those memories back, you could keep anyone alive now indefinitely. That's wild. That happens in this book. That happens in Dune Messiah. What a breakthrough. And listen, they don't let it go to waste. Yeah. <laughs> they don't sleep on that knowledge. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. In Heretics, we learned that the Tleilaxu masters, not all the Tleilaxu, but the upper crust of society, the leaders, are revived as golas and retain their memories of thousands of past lives. Definitely the like poor man's duct tape solution, other memory substitute. <laughs> They're like, how'd you do it? A plant? So true. We're going to do posthumous cloning, bro. <laughs> oh my God. So true. Yeah. So thinking a bit more about this immortality that's unlocked in Dune Messiah through these golas, hate is, of course, the first goal in history to get his memories back. And Duncan Idaho continues to live through all six books. Through the next three, four, five thousand years. He's the main character, bro. <laughs> Everyone from Leto 2 to the Benny Gesserit just won't let our guy die. I mean, have you seen him climb a rock? <laughs> Bring him back. <laughs> what, he died? Get another. <laughs> Get another. The poor guy must be so tired. He probably just wants a nap. But no. Everyone's got to bring him back and psychologically break him over and over and over again for thousands of years. <laughs> Rough. Clumsy Duncan wasn't born with a flaw. He was just tired. <laughs> he was just tired. Let him rest, y'all. Yeah. And to wrap up my point about Golas, I had a bit of a speculative thought that we could chat about for a bit. I find it interesting that once they have this breakthrough in Messiah, once the Tleilaxu know how to bring Agola's memory back, they don't really commercialize this secret to immortality. They're not marketing it. They're not selling it as something for the rich and wealthy to do to live forever. Yeah. And I feel like they could have done that. I mean, a lot of powerful people in this empire would be willing to spend a lot of money to live forever, to come back over and over and over again as Golas. Well, I will say, on this kind of topic, I see the Tleilaxu anytime they offer anybody anything. The question is always, what do they, what do they stand to gain, right? Mm, yes. The Tleilaxu eyes are not everything they're promised to be. And Paul points out, well, why don't you fucking use them <laughs> then? Why are there no Tleilaxu with Tleilaxu eyes if they improve upon the original fellas? Like, where's the gap in your advertising? Yeah. And I think when it comes down to Golas, which they do provide, probably very fucking expensive but 
what they already do provide is something that they can condition, that they can give rules, they can fuck with you. They, you know, again, there's a note in the Dune Encyclopedia about how they always deliver a gola with an unasked for quality. <laughs> like, right. Oh my gosh. It was one of the possible explanations for why hate has the metal eyes. They were just like, yeah, this is funny. You're like, can I have a vanilla cupcake? And they're like, we put a nickel inside of it. <laughs> You're like, why? <laughs> they're like, just cause. Eat it, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think like if they told people, hey, you can remove all of our weird conditioning, it would reduce the ways that they could influence and manipulate people. Yeah, that's a great point. I would also add to that that we know by heretics and chapter house truly how secretive the Tleilaxu are. It's not until those books that we get a peek into their, frankly, fucked up society. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can easily imagine the Tleilaxu being like, oh, we solved immortality? Cool. No one else gets to know this until the perfect moment where we get to use this tool right. to take over the galaxy. Like, they would hold on to that trap card until the end of the <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh match, until the killer move to activate it. Yo, true. <laughs> so that's my takeaway number two about Golas and the Tleilaxu unlocking immortality in this book. Absolutely wild to think about. Yeah. Let's wrap up the episode. One more takeaway to go, Leo. What's your takeaway too? All you need is love. Uh, so love at the heart of Dune. Oh. This actually, this takeaway comes a little bit from a Twitter conversation that I had. And I will say this is going to be pretty brief because I think that it mostly belongs in a conversation all about the Honored Matres and the Bene Gesserit in perhaps its own episode. Yeah. Messiah shows us Paul wrestling with one of Dune's deepest themes, uh, which is control and balance, basically opposing love and chaos. Now, in Paul's case, this takes the form of prescience as a cage, binding him to, as he perceives it, literally prescribed actions, literally things that he says, oh, I've already done this a million times, I have to do it again. And he fits himself to the vision, and that's how he sees. Here's the quote. Any delusions of free will he harbored now must be merely the prisoner rattling his cage. His curse lay in the fact that he saw the cage. Now, through Dune, we see optimistic young man Paul, who's trying to find the way around, kind of fighting to understand his powers, the limits, where do they begin, where do they end. But in Messiah, we're stuck with this tired, depressed, almost 30-year-old, right? Same, relatable, yeah. <laughs> who can't bring himself to live in the moment. Same, relatable. There. Relatable. <laughs> I'm on TikTok right now. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm kidding. Or am I? No, I'm not. But <laughs> the point is, Paul struggles with that. And, and let us not forget, Paul's birth, the very beginning of the guy Paul Atreides, was in defiance of the Bene Gesserit orders. And, of course, later on is known as the Jessica crime, right? His life is from an act of love. And yeah. later in the books, among members of the sisterhood, we see the scars of that perceived betrayal, even as individuals like Odrade are going, no, I was taught to love, and that is my secret power. 
Mm-hmm. We see this grand debate amongst the Bene Gesserit in Heretics and Chapter House. And there's this idea that gets brought up over and over and over again that the Bene Gesserit sisterhood had always seen love as a weakness, something that was to be avoided at all costs. And when it happened, you cut it off immediately. You identify, oh no, oh God, I caught feelings. Run, <laughs> leave. I'm reassigned to a new planet or something. It's insane. Yeah. Sounds like me in college. <laughs> Sounds like <laughs> me. So yeah, it's it's a tough strategy. Take it from me. It doesn't work. It's bad. It's a bad choice. But as the Bene Gesserit start to face this existential threat from the splinter cell honored matres, ironically following the same theories of love is bad, they are forced to examine those same core issues that Paul is wrestling with thousands of years prior in Dune Messiah. Yeah. Like, what is the nature of attachment? Are we debilitated by love? Or is it something that can have a place in a vision that we haven't yet foreseen or calculated? And we get basically, in essence, the clearest example of this whole point that I'm making from Mirbella in Chapter House. And again, she's sitting at the crossroad of Bene Gesserit and Honor Matre. Quote, she felt no weakening from the tugs of desire. Bene Gesserit and honored matres alike said love weakened, end quote. And Mirbella's going, wait, what the fuck? She caught feelings at that point for Duncan. And she's going, this doesn't make me weaker. Are we all wrong? <laughs> like, yeah. are we all wrong about this? Jesus. And sure enough, in Messiah, it's not the love that weakens Paul. He's weakened by the pressures of being the first to do fucking everything and of course his experience then goes on to basically show leto to what must be done and also what must not be done yeah i love that i love your takeaway about love don't let it paralyze you don't be afraid (laughs) step into the chaos I, i feel no weakening from the tugs of desire leo oh my god wow holy smoke No, is that, I, a, I is actually, that a Yelp review or like a, a grinder <laughs> message? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I actually really do love this takeaway. Like, I, I, I think this is so central to Dune. And now that you've sort of said it out loud, I'm starting to go back and connect a lot of dots about how love is so central to many of the characters and key moments in the story. It's a catalyst for so much of what happens in these books. Yeah. Dr. Yui's love for his wife, Wana, betrays the Atreides, sets off the first book. Paul's love for Chani is the thing at the center of Dune Messiah. Leto's love for Hui Nuri and God Emperor of Dune is what brings about his demise, the demise he knows must happen. And as you've mentioned, the Bene Gesserit and the Honored Matres struggling with these institutional thoughts about love and breaking beyond that and how that's a catalyst for the future that they have to thrust into the universe. Right. Like re-examining the new dogma. version of the Bene Gesserit. Yeah. The dogma that they have to kind of unshackle. Right. Yeah. There's definitely so much more to say and you've really kind of got my brain firing on all cylinders now thinking about this. <laughs> Perfect time those to are just, the episode. <laughs> right. Those are just some examples that I rattled off from the top of my head, but there are so many other examples 
of love being a catalyst for change and evolution in the Dune saga. Yeah. Love really is at the core of this story. Beautifully said, Leo. I love that. Thank you. It's like the the feeling that one emperor had for Sligs. You know, you're just yeah. sweetest feeling this side of heaven. Sweetest to meet this side of heaven. <laughs> Another fantastic grinder message. That's That one's free, folks. You can use it. Hello. Would you like to taste the sweetest meat this side of heaven? Put that in your bio. <laughs> My God, I apologize. <laughs> well, that wraps on, on, on that note. note. <laughs> <laughs> that is the, uh, what a note to end on. That's a very yeah, strange Jesus. Note. What a sad <laughs> book to end on such raunchy humor. It's fine. Yeah, truly. That's the end of the Dune Messiah book club. Oh my gosh. What a journey it's been. What a journey. Yeah. And as we stated, of course, we'll be continuing this book club series. We plan on diving into Children of Dune just as we did with the first and second book. And of course, we have a lot of fun episodes planned that have been on our to-do list for months. Mm -hmm. That sci-fi series that folks are clamoring for, a riff track style episode we want to do for the Dune movie. We have a lot of fun ideas in the can that we've just been waiting on until we had some free time. And now we do. Right. But I think to just to wrap up, I just want to say a heartfelt thank you for everyone who took this journey with us through the first book and now through the second book. These book club episodes are an immense amount of work, <laughs> but they are equally rewarding. Yeah. My love for Dune has increased every episode we do, every chapter we dive into, and every discussion you and I have, Leo. And I hope our listeners feel the same, whether it's their first time jumping into this story or they've read it a dozen times before. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. I can't wait to get to the uh, next pages, especially Children of Dune and God Emperor. I haven't yelled at a book as much as I've yelled at those books. I can't wait. My God. <laughs> if you thought we were raunchy now, just wait. <laughs> Dune gets hornier, y'all. Moneo! <laughs> Moneo! I'm horny! I don't have a dick! <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Madib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.